All right, now that we've looked at um, definitions of the church, the question I want to ask today, and I think this is super important because how you answer this question affects what you prioritize in the local church. And the question is, why does the church exist? Right? So, so one of the things that blows my mind when I think about creation and when I think about all that God has done, one of the things that blows my mind is the infinite number of possibilities that were available to God when he decides to do what he does. So that, I know that's kind of like stretch your brain thinking for 8.30 in the morning, but, but think about God from eternity past, then creating a world, right? The fact that he chose the world to be round rather than square, uh, and there might be some flat earthers in here that disagree with me, but, um, but the fact that God chose, right, to create jellyfish or giraffe or the fact that grass is green rather than yellow. I mean, all these things were decisions that God made totally out of God's own prerogative to make decisions. And he made certain decisions versus other decisions. And he has decided to create something called the church. And the question I want to ask, and what I wonder is, does the Bible answer, why did God create the local Church And why is God still incorporating church growth or multiplying churches throughout the world as part of the plan? Why is this part of the plan? So I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Starting with verse 7. And then we'll read all the way down to verse 13. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So, takes us back to creation. Who created all things, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have all boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now in Ephesians 3 Paul has just unfolded for the reader some of the most precious, beautiful gospel doctrine truths in the whole Bible. He has unfolded what Paul describes as the unsearchable riches of Christ, the mystery hidden for ages in God, that in Jesus, through Jesus, God might redeem you, that God might adopt you, forgive you, fill you with his spirit, create a new people for himself. I mean, Ephesians is packed to the brim with the beauties of all that the gospel accomplished. We'll actually read a large section in the sermon later today um, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, where it just talks about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places being poured on the people who believe in Jesus. But here in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, we have a big so that moment, right? So so that meaning because or for this purpose And we have a purpose statement that unveils why God has done the things he has done in Christ Jesus. So look at verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this verse, these, these couple of verses really stopped me in my tracks 11 years ago when I was asking all my questions about what I believed about the local church and what it was that we were supposed to be doing. I was a new youth pastor struggling with uh, all types of things in the local church. And I come across this, this verse and I realize that my understanding of the purpose of the church and the church's purpose in the world, until that point, my understanding was a very shallow one. I thought that the number one priority of the church, of my youth group, of ministry in the church was to simply grow bigger. In other words, the primary reason for the church's existence was simply to reach more and more people. Not necessarily mattering how you did it as long as you were getting more people in the door. For me... Church had always been simply a man-made tool or an evangelistic machine designed to get more people saved, right? In my mind, that was the extent to the purpose of the church. It was kind of just like a machine or tool to get less people to go to hell, more people to go to heaven, and whatever you could do to get the church to accomplish that thing— then you should do that because the ultimate goal was just more people in heaven, less people in hell. But this verse began to lift my eyes that maybe there's more to the gathering of the church than just a fulfillment of the Great Commission in terms of more believers in Jesus. According to this text, the eternal purpose realized in Christ Jesus our Lord is that God would be eternally glorified by all the cosmos through the very being of the church that God created. That it's for the glory of God. That is the manifold wisdom of God being made known through this group of people. It, it, it was the glory of God manifested by the church that Paul says he was giving his life for. Look at verse 13. This is just a weird phrase. We don't talk like this. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is, this is what I'm pouring my life out for, Paul says. And then he says, which is your glory. Excuse the squeakiness of the voice. I'm losing it. Sounds like I'm a teenager again. <laughs> your glory. Paul did not say... I'm suffering for God's glory, although that would have been true, right? I mean, that, that works. But he writes to the Ephesians, I'm suffering for your glory. That is the glory that is coming out of you, off of you, reflecting from you, and then shining to where even the angels in the heavenly places behold and are stunned by what God's doing in the local fellowship of believers, the bride of Christ, the body of God, the son, the family of God, the father, the temple of God, the spirit. So truth number one, if you haven't already figured out this blank, the church exists to glorify God. The church exists to glorify God. That is to reflect something of God's godness, his manifold wisdom. And I think one of the difficulties and Bible interpretation comes with our failure, and you, you hear this all the time in our church, but one of the difficulties is, is it comes with our failure, failure to read the Bible as one big story, to understand things in the context of what God's been doing from the beginning will do to the end. The Bible, as you've heard me say, is not a book of fortune cookie slogans designed to help you live a better life. It's not a giant rule book just to get you to follow stuff. It's not a roadmap to life so you know what job you're supposed to work or who you're going to be married. Rather, it's a story about what God is doing to glorify himself, right? So in the beginning, he creates humanity. What's the purpose of humanity in Genesis? What are they supposed to do? Huh? Give pleasure to God. Yeah, give pleasure to God. To multiply. to multiply, fill the whole earth. What were they made in? 
the image of God, right? So, so God makes Adam and Eve and gives them purpose. Here's the reason for your existence. Reflect the image of God. Keep watch over the garden, right? So, 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 so sort of be God's servants over the place in which God dwells. Be fruitful and multiply. So in other words, glorify God, steward the place of God's dwelling, spread the glory of God to every inch of the planet. Now we know, right, they distort the image of God, are kicked out of the dwelling place, and then fill the earth with a curse. (laughs) So they do the opposite. (laughs) But that's not the end of the story, right? Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham, and he actually gives Abraham a similar commission. He says that through Abraham's offspring, the one made in his image, God was going to fill the earth with blessing again, right? Through the people of Israel. So there's reestablishing a purpose of you're going to reflect to me. Glory is going to go to the ends of the earth. Now it's through Israel. Israel is the new representative of God's glory. They're to watch over God's new dwelling place, which was a temple, right? They would be a city on a hill, a light to the nations, so that God's glory was spread to the ends of the earth. Now, did Israel do that well? No, they don't. They fail, they sin, refuse to worship God and God's dwelling place. As we will see today, as we saw a couple of weeks, the temple gets what? <coughs> Desolated, right? Absolutely destroyed. They did not care for the dwelling place of God. They turned it into a place where man was worshipped instead. So, at the beginning of the New Testament, right? After thousands of years of mankind falling, failing, Jesus comes in the flesh to be the true image of God in the world, because he was God in the world. And he now is the true dwelling place of God, because he is God now dwelling in a place (laughs) on earth. And then he recommissions the original missions, fill the earth with the glory, except this time it sounds a lot like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, or you will receive power of the Holy Spirit as you're a witness to me to the ends of the earth, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So, So Jesus comes to make a new people according to a new covenant who would fulfill a very old purpose. Fill the world with people who reflect the glory of God. And the church would now be the way in which God displays himself throughout the world and beyond the world. And that's exactly what we see happening in the scriptures. That's what we see Jesus praying for. If you want to turn to John 17, I'm going to flip over to John chapter 17, verse 20, in the high priestly prayer as Jesus is praying for what would happen post-death, post-resurrection. John 17, verse 20 through 23. Ronnie, will you read that loud and proud for me? Yes. Um, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. In them, I, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as I, and love them, even as you have loved me. So this is the prayer. Jesus is praying for the future of the church, that they would resemble such a closeness to one another, that it would actually reflect the Son's fellowship with the Father that has been happening from eternity past. That the closeness of the church and the people within the church to one another, that their oneness with one another and with God would actually be the reason that the world would believe in the gospel message. The proof of the gospel message would be in the transformed people now close to one another in a way that the rest of the world is not. It's a supernaturalness to the fellowship within the church that would draw those outside the church 
to believe the gospel that they say they believe in. So, so it's crazy to me. I mean, that John 17, we actually have God the Son speaking to God the Father about his greatest desire post-crucifixion. And he prays primarily for supernatural community, which would reach the world. For fellowship and friendships that would be so close to one another that the world would say, what message do they have that we do not have. And again, that's exactly what we see Paul emphasizing back in Ephesians 3. So turn back to Ephesians 3 again. So Paul has just said, this is the purpose of the church, that, that the eternal glory of God, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to even the rulers in the heavenly places. And as he says that, right? So remember, Paul, Paul writes logically. He builds arguments. Your chapters and verses were not originally there. So you've got to jump on his train of thought and, and hang on with him, or else you'll read the Bible in sort of pieces that he never intended you to separate. Okay? So he's just said, the church glorifies God. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he starts to pray. Presumably toward that end, right? That the church would glorify God, that they would be the, the source of God's receiving glory in the world. Verse 14, so he says, I'm going to pray about that. I want to pray for that. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Little, little tip of the hat to the, the commission to Abraham, right? Fill the family. I fill the earth with all the families. So from, from every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, let me pause there. Every you here is second person plural. This is why I wish that the Bible would use the word y'all. Okay. <laughs> I would, if I could have my own translation of the Bible, there's a couple things I would fix. One of them is y'all. We need y'all in the Bible because because we individualistic Americans, we sit down and we read this as if it's talking to me individually, as if Paul was praying for individual people to be strengthened with power to do whatever they individually wanted to do with their individual lives. But that's not what Paul's praying. Paul just said the collective church will display the manifold wisdom of God. And so he says, I pray for y'all <laughs> to be strengthened with power through his spirit in you all's inner being. Right. So that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And remember, what were they supposed to do in the beginning? Reflect God, steward the dwelling place. Who's the dwelling place now? Y'all. <laughs> You're the dwelling place to be stewarded now, right? Verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power of work within us, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul prays that the Ephesian church together would be so filled with God, so rooted and grounded in love, not just individually but corporately, that verse 19, to him would be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So truth number one was the church exists to glorify God. Now let me pause for some discussion. Now why would it be important to firmly grasp God's glory reflected through the church as its primary mission? Rather than just saying that evangelism is the primary mission. Why would it be important to make glorification of God ultimate rather than evangelism as ultimate? I'm not saying don't evangelize, but why would it be important to say glory to God is most ultimate? That's right. Order is important. What might go wrong if you don't have that priority in place? Focused on people, not on God. The yeah. Focus shifts. Yeah. 
is everything that God said that we obey, that glorifies him, is everything that he said about evangelism? Or has he said more than that? He said more than that, for sure. It's one of the things we give ourselves to. And and there's lots of connection, right? But if you... You need me? You need keys? Sorry. Um, It's one of the things that... uh, uh, Here you go. There's a lot of talk, okay? There's a lot of talk about decreasing baptism numbers in the Southern Baptist churches, Southern Baptist convention, and the talk normally goes something like this, all right? If you've been around the seminary, you've been around Southern Baptist folk for any amount of time, it goes something like this. Baptism numbers are down because churches are not evangelizing. Therefore, what we really need is more evangelism. Lack of evangelism is our primary problem, so pushing people to do more evangelism is our primary solution. And I think it's actually a misdiagnosis. In fact, I don't think lack of evangelism is necessarily our primary problem. I think it's a problem, but I think it's a problem that's actually a symptom. Okay? Same way that a headache might be a symptom to the COVID-19 virus, there's actually a deeper thing happening than the headache. I might even say that Southern Baptist's preoccupation with evangelism and evangelistic tactics, which tried to get as many people saved as fast as possible through whatever means necessary while ignoring a whole lot of what the Bible said otherwise, actually filled the church with lost people who think they're saved. And lost people don't tend to evangelize. People who haven't actually been truly converted don't tend to boldly profess their faith at the expense of rejection. What happens is if you make the conversion of individuals your primary task, you will then begin to attempt to try to do that in ways according to your own wisdom. You'll begin to measure success by the number of decisions rather than by faithfulness to whatever God has said, come what may. So if your, if your primary task is grow your church bigger, guess what you're never going to do? Remove people from your church. Church discipline doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense in a logical sort of man's wisdom sort of way if your goal is to get as many people as possible in the door. And so what happens is we're no longer trying to glorify God in everything he said. Now we're just trying to accomplish our quota, this, this sort of ultimate mission that has overwhelmed everything else. And I'm not saying don't do this, right? (laughs) I'm saying glorify God and let God bring about the results of this. I'm saying saying be faithful in all that God has said, and then what you'll actually see is more evangelism happening. You won't have to every single week get up and guilt everybody because there's two, two billion people that have never heard the name of Jesus and then just like poke them every single week saying, saying people are going to hell, you don't care. People, yeah, they don't care because they don't know God. They, they, they haven't been converted. You won them to your church with a good choir. Had nothing to do with the gospel or the, the gospel's power in your church. So why, why do you think a good choir is going to send them to the nations? <laughs> that It's not. And, and I've heard over and over again what you've, won them to is what you'll keep them with. And so what churches become are sort of these giant machines of keeping people happy so they won't leave and go to other churches. And what happens is then all of a sudden you're saying you're caring about reaching the nations, but really what you're caring about is maintaining the institution that you've created, right? You're just trying to feed the monster that you've created. So staff meetings start to look like how can we keep people happy? How can we get more people in the door rather than How can we be more faithful in how we're leading the church according to what God has said? I don't know where my notes. I went on a tangent. You did good. Thanks. Um, So so as, as Paul's praying, let the glory happen in the church, notice what his next step is not. His next step is not, 
Here are these strategies to reach the people in Ephesus. Here's how you can have a bigger church in Ephesus. Notice what's next in the logical order of his flow of thought. Remember, chapters and verses are not original. So look at Ephesians 4. So he's just said God's aim is to glorify himself through the church. I'm praying that you'd be filled with God and rooted in his love so that there would be glory in the church. So the question then becomes, how shall we live? What shall we focus on? What should we do then? We'll look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, oh, we're, we're building, we're building for a command here, right? <laughs> I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. <clears throat> Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Remember the one another commands that we saw last week. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, okay? We're still talking about church here, right? Body of God the Son. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, hey, that's the entryway into the church, right? Baptism is the, the public Proclamation, I'm one of you, right? One God and Father of all. There's the family of God, the language. He's Father of all of us, who is over all and through all and in all. So, so, so get the connection. God's glory is through the church. I pray for God's glory through the church. Church, and here's the big command. You're expected to be, go to the nations or put on a block party. Or, <laughs> and this is what he says, be humble. Be gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love. In in other words, church, assembly of God's people, fellowship of God's people, embody Jesus to one another for the watching world to see. That is what it means for the church to put on display the manifold wisdom of God. Be the embodiment of Jesus in a broken world. Now turn with me to another text where we see this in Romans chapter 15. If you were with us in the Romans study a couple years ago, this, this may be familiar to you. And you'll actually see the, uh, a portion of this text in our church covenant. It's the last paragraph of our church covenant. Romans chapter 15 uh, verses 1 through 6. Who would like to read that for me? Romans 15, 1 through 6. Go ahead, man. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Truth number two, write this down. The church exists to make the gospel visible. Now, this is kind of another way of saying glorify God, but it's, it's a more specific way. Again, what we have Paul emphasizing at the, at the end of his massive treaty on theology, right? I mean, he's just talked about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of, you know, uh, adoption and the spirit and justification and regeneration and sanctification. I mean, all the Asians, right? All of it has been leading up to this moment, and now he turns his attention to the new community life. Strong members, strong members are to bear with the weak members in a selfless way. All members are to prioritize building one another up, encouraging one another with the scriptures. There's supposed to be a beautiful harmony within the church. With one voice, when the church gathers, they glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wish we could spend the entire time just on this passage, but I want you to to zero in and focus in on verse 7. Verse 7. 
because it all sort of builds to the big therefore, right? Therefore, verse 7, this is his way of summing up what he's just said. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, let me pause here and ask you a question. According to the gospel preached in Romans, how has Christ welcomed you? How would you describe how Jesus has welcomed you in this room to himself? As you are. As you are, unconditionally. You don't need to do anything. You don't earn this at all, right? This is an affection bestowed upon you that you did not do anything to deserve or earn. That's right. What else? Sacrificially. Yeah. In what way did Christ show his love to you, according to Romans 5? On the cross, right? The love was displayed through self-sacrifice for someone who did nothing to deserve that sacrificial love, right? So Christ welcomes you as a sinner, right? Romans is very clear. He's not surprised by your sin. Your sin is why he came to die in your place. Jesus set his affection on you while you were ungodly, Romans 5. And he pursued you not because you were sinless, but because he loves you. Salvation is not a call to clean your life up first, then come to Jesus. It's a call to come to Jesus with all your mess and to trust him with that mess. Christ welcomes you with grace that abounds, Romans 8. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Christ welcomes you through his own sacrifice. Christ welcomes you as a fellow sufferer. There's no degree of suffering that you're enduring right now that Jesus doesn't empathize with, that Jesus did not experience in his own walk throughout his life on earth and then at the moment of the cross. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to lose a loved one. He knows what it is to be betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his family. The promise of Christianity is not that we'll never suffer. Rather, it's that a suffering Christ welcomes us and now walks with us to what he's promised for us. Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He actually walks with us in such a way. Uh, Romans 8, 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit intercedes for us. Romans 5, 5, Hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the spirit that's been given to us. He welcomes us by walking with us in suffering. He's present with us very much in a real way. He welcomes us with a kind of assurance that we don't have to worry that he's going to change his mind about us. Like it's not just that we, we get in having not earned it. We stay in this relationship by virtue of his love, not our own, right? Romans 8, 38. We read this all the time. I'm sure neither death nor life or angels or rulers or things present, things to come, powers, height, death, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. And obviously, no, we could keep going and we could keep going throughout Romans to say, this is how Jesus has welcomed you. But in Romans 15, 7, it, it changes all of that that you're receiving this way. And it says, now give that this way. Verse 7, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. That's insane. So, so this is what church fellowships are supposed to look like, right? They're supposed to be places where we assume that we're going to sin against each other. Where we welcome one another as sinners. Like, we're not surprised when a church member makes a mistake or says something mean to me or didn't invite me to that thing. That's, that's not a surprise. Jesus wasn't surprised by our sin. Oh, man, I didn't know you were that bad. <laughs> No, 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 no. You, you come into the church community the same way Jesus came in the world, assuming I'm coming into a community of sinners and welcoming one another as sinners. And what that does is it provides us with the opportunities to 
Forgive as Christ forgave. Show grace as Christ showed grace. Walk with those who suffer. Love with a love that is not easily shaken. One that is sure. The kind of sureness that we feel in the embrace of Jesus that no matter how bad we mess up, he's still going to love us. That same certainty of Christ's love for us should be the same certainty we feel with a fellow church member's love for us. That no matter how bad I make a mistake, that they're still going to be there to love me. We know that when we come to faith, God actually sends the spirit into his people, right? Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of Christ dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit doesn't belong to him. So the Christian community, therefore, is a community of people who've been welcomed by Christ, are indwelt by Christ. And so this is how the God of the universe has ordained that, that his gospel go forward, that you enjoy Christ. If you want to be close to Christ Jesus, be close to his church. If you want to be close to Christ Jesus, be meaningfully and intimately close to other Christians. When we sin against a brother or sister in Christ, in a church, in a local fellowship of people committed to one another, when we sin against someone else and they extend forgiveness toward us that we didn't deserve, we experience a taste of the forgiveness of Christ in that moment. It becomes real to us. The gospel is not just theoretical. It becomes real. When we walk through suffering and a Christian in this church embraces us and holds us and prays for us as we weep, at a prayer service because of a miscarriage. When we're embraced by that fellow Christian, we feel physically the spiritual embrace of Christ. If we're the hands and feet of Jesus, when the loving hands of a fellow Christian in my local church embrace me in my suffering, then I am experiencing the embrace of Jesus through that person. That's God's Intent, the way he manifests himself in the world is through the church making visible what he's promised in the gospel message. This is why we call the church the body of Christ. We are people, we, we don't only ask what would Jesus do when we think about how we relate to one another. We ask what has Jesus done? Well, Jesus sacrificed everything for me when I did nothing to deserve that. Now, what if a church community really looked like that? What would it it look like for you not to have to earn someone else's approval, but upon walking in the door, admitting that you're a sinner, joining yourself with that church, they say, I'm with you no matter what. No matter how bad you fall, no matter how bad you fail, I'll love you till it hurts, even when you're telling me that you don't want me to love you anymore. (laughs) Ray Ortland says this about the church in his little book. I highly encourage a little green book called The Gospel. Um, and it's, he says this. He says, a gospel-defined church is a prophetic sign that points people beyond itself. It's a model home of a new neighborhood that Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into this kind of church right now to see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have a chance. The church exists to make the beautiful truths of the gospel visible in very real lives. And now, now, if you had a church that actually looked like that, now obviously we talked about last week the, the, the danger of idealizing the church, saying that you're going to find this perfectly. This is, the, this is the goal, this is the aim. But if you were to see a church that really the community was like this, you think they'd have an evangelism problem? <laughs> what makes the church attractive is both the gospel that they say and then the gospel that you can actually just see in their relationships to each other. Unbelievers being drawn by the Spirit see that and they want it. They desire it. That is what makes a church attractive. Not your LED screens and your lights and your smoke and your 
guy on the stage with the skinny jeans and, you know, beanie, right? Like, 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 or flip that and say you're a guy with a suit and tie and, you know, um, your choir with robes. That's not what makes the church attractive. This is what makes the church attractive. And, and when you're in that type of community, the Great Commission begins to, to, to be fulfilled. And now we can talk about truth number three. Truth number three, the church exists to make disciples of all nations. This is the community in which the disciples are made. Right? This is, this is where it happens. This is how it happens. And thus, right? Paul now continues in the argument. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. So we've said the church, so he's presented the gospel in Ephesians 1 and 2. In Ephesians 3, he said the gospel is going to glorify the God Almighty. He's prayed for it. He said this is the kind of community that you're supposed to be. And now he tells them, Okay, this is what the the Great Commission now looks among you. We we read this last week, but it's worth reading again. Um, Who would like to read Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16 out loud for me? 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's the work of the ministry. Here's what it means to make disciples. Here's what the Great Commission is. Here's when you come to me and say, how can I use my gifts in the local church? We talked about this some last week. My first answer is going to come from chapter 4, verse 14. 15, rather. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, so what's the work of the ministry? What's, what does it mean to make a disciple? It's truth-telling in order to help someone else follow Jesus. When each member of the church works properly to build up each other by lovingly speaking truth to each other, the body grows spiritually and numerically. So, so primarily, you know, what, what, is, what are you supposed to be doing in our church? If you're a church member, primarily, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be diving deeper into relationships in such a way where, where you receive other people's truth-telling and love and you give other people truth-telling and love so that all of you can live in accordance with the calling you've been called with Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a nearness to one another that you have the license to help each other follow Jesus more faithfully, right? That when somebody confronts you and says, hey, I think you could follow more faithfully in this way, you don't never talk to them again. <laughs> but, you, but you take what they said, even if they did it in kind of a poor way because they're sinners, so they're doing the best they can. They're kind of bumping their head and stumbling along the way. I always tell people, if somebody in our church confronts you on their sin, uh, on your sin, and does it in a loving way, like, like, and they even say, I'd say this in love, and they're doing the best they can, you need to show grace to that person because they've literally stuck their head out on the chopping block for your sake. Like they've loved you enough to have this awkward conversation and they've probably been scared to have this for weeks and they kind of like probably spiritually like riled themselves up for it and they went into it and like, hey, I love you so much and I really just don't think you should be with that guy who's not a Christian. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing and I'm so sorry. Your response should, and even if they're just kind of like slamming into things along the way, like it's really messy and stumbling all over themselves. What did mean to say it that way? You should be humbled that someone would love you enough to stick their head out there 
at the risk of you getting angry with them, at the risk of them seeing judgmental, at the risk of, of – I mean, because you know what would have been easier for them? Just to go about their lives and not talk to you about this. That would have been easier, you know? So, so, so I've had to do this if, in my own life as a pastor. Somebody comes to my office and says, well, I think you messed up and this and this and this. And sometimes they don't do it in like the nicest way, Right? Uh, maybe there's sin all involved in that and the way that they go about it. But my response should be, okay, they thought this was a big enough deal. I know I'm a sinner and I definitely have failures and blind spots I can't see. So how can I respond to this attempt of speaking the truth in love in a humble way, find the kernels of truth, and be thankful that this person loves me enough to talk to me rather than just talking to everybody else in the church about how much I suck, right? <laughs> I mean, those were their options, right? <laughs> they actually came to me, so praise, praise, praise the Lord, right? This is the ministry of the church, and, and, and this, this includes evangelism. I mean, what is evangelism? Evangelism is speaking the truth in love to someone. Why don't you do it more often? Because you're afraid that the person will reject you because of the love that you, you – because of the truth you spoke. How do you motivate yourself to do it? Well, your love for them supersedes your love for yourself. Your love for them supersedes your desire to preserve your own – Dignity. I mean, you know, you, you literally do what Jesus did. You sacrifice yourself in that conversation at the risk of awkwardness or anger or rejection uh, because you love them. It's literally a picture of Jesus every time you evangelize. You're saying, I don't care what happens to me as long as you come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's beautiful and glorious and they come to faith. Sometimes you get crucified. But... What makes the gospel more visible than you getting crucified? <laughs> I mean, that's the picture of it, isn't it? Crucifixion. I mean, I, I have in front of me, this is just the way, as a member, is faithful to do this in their own relationships, in their own spheres of influences, in their neighborhoods, their jobs, their families. This is how God grows a church, Right? I mean, it's, it's not a, hey, get everybody to come listen to the talented speaker on Sundays so that maybe we can convert it. The evangelism happens in the love, truth speaking, happening every day, all the time in your neighborhoods. I, I got a list here in front of me of 24 names um, who either just got finished with the membership class or are going through the membership class. And I was just thinking about the individual stories of many of them. So I think of a man I know, Katie Palmer. Katie Palmer, who's come to our church, was not a Christian. Uh, Right now, she's still wrestling through it. She began our membership class because she was working. uh, Right now, she's working through it with Taylor. um, And and Taylor's praying and hoping that she'll meet Jesus in the process. She came because Carly was such a representative of Jesus in the workplace and invited Katie to come to our church. Carly became a Christian after having been invited by her coworker, Paige, who had discovered something strange in our church and invited Carly to come along. Paige is the first person I ever met in St. Rose and invited her to join us for prayer from the Howling Pepper. So, so how does our church grow? Well, you meet somebody, a waitress at that point, and I said, hey, how can I pray for you? And she's like, wow, this is super weird. This guy's asking how I can pray. And I said, you know, we actually pray every Sunday night. And she came, and she invited Carly, and Carly invited Katie, and Katie's now going through membership, and we're hoping she comes to faith in the Lord. That's how a church grows. I think of another example. My wife just finished membership class with Maxine Hayes, volleyball player at UNO. She was discipled and mentored by Sarah Strassner, Sarah Strassner was baptized two years ago in our church after being invited by Randy Harvey. Now I can see there's some ulterior motives there with Randy, right? (laughs) But God uses all things, right, for his glory. (laughs) Right? Randy is now on staff at our church, but I met Randy when he was a 19-year-old or 20-year-old that Nick Barnfield was chasing down, trying to disciple, trying to share Jesus with. Miss Anna's here because Andreas is here. And Andreas is here because Nick was in the high school locker room sharing Jesus with people. This is the way a church grows in a healthy way. SRCC will grow in accordance with how healthy her members are and how faithful they are to speak the truth in love with everybody that they encounter. Right? Now that's a very different picture of church growth than what you will read in most church growth books. 
Most church growth books think in terms of high-capacity leaders that can put on uh, attractive programs that will draw people from the neighborhood in with mailers and signs and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think that our church could probably do better with some of those things because that's not where my gifting is. I need people to do better with the signs. And Lord, help us. Our front door's broken still. I mean, that's, that's not a very welcoming church. We're locked out when you, when you walk up. So I think there's things we can do better uh, to be more welcoming. Um, but at the end of the day, those aren't the make it or break it things in our church. This is why Easter at our church is always, it's glorious, it's great, it's fun. Um, we love celebrating the resurrection. But we do the same thing on Easter that we do every other Sunday of the year. And we don't expect our church to, to rise and fall based off of us convincing Easter comers to stay. Because the real work happens through your lives, in your lives, every day, all the time. Uh, so even if Easter gets coveted out and nobody can come, guess what? Our church survives and thrives because the church was never about that moment. It was about the people living out millions of moments all the time, everywhere they go. All right. I'm going to stop right there. 930. Questions or thoughts on this topic of why does the church exist? Any questions, comments before we pray and uh, head over there to try to be the gospel made visible? Yes, sir. I think if you weren't here last week and you hadn't gone through the uh, commands that a church should be, you covered it. Yeah. This session also, that's a, that's a great thing. I've gone through and uh, looked at the references. Yeah. And if we did half of these things, yeah. half of these things, the early church was not. Yeah. May change the world. Right. If, if we could just do some of these things, that's right. We could change the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. The one another commands. We read over them super quickly to get to more interesting things in our New Testament often. Um, but I suggest we slow down a little bit <laughs> and ask if we're actually obeying. I mean, gosh, that one in Ephesians 4, submitting to one another in love, that's one question that I love to ask. People that say, I don't need the church, I'll ask, well, who are you submitting to? Like, who, in, who, who do you submit your life to that they can question you or, or tell you do this or don't do that? Or, because if, if you don't have, if, 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 what context can you obey that if you're kind of a lone ranger Christian, right? Um, nobody wants to submit to anybody because we're all sinful. But uh, that, that's one of the beauties of the church is because it displays the humility of Jesus who didn't have to submit himself to anybody but became a human and a servant to the point of obedience uh, of death on a cross. So, All right. Let's, let's pray and thank the Lord for these scriptures. And let's go with one voice, glorify the Lord and God, our Father of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would guide our time of worship this morning as we gather with the saints. Help us to, uh, even when we sing this morning, um, Father, I pray as we listen to the voices around us, lifting up the same praise to the same Father, uh, would there just be a, a different degree of appreciation? for the way in which the church puts on display the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, we thank you for this gift. And God, we confess our church uh, is so far away from walking uh, perfectly in these purposes, God. But we pray that you would increase our faithfulness day by day and help us, um, help us to do a better job of making the gospel made visible, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.